Well, fatherhood is a transformative experience for both the father and the child. And as many of you uh, may know, uh, I'm a new father, and I've been recently transformed in my sleep patterns and energy levels. Uh, But seriously, you should know when you ask if I'm getting sleep that you should ask Becca because she's taken the the brunt of that uh, with great love and patience, and I'm thankful to her for it. But to be a bit more serious, uh, we are all impacted by fathers, our own fathers, our father's father, and even other fathers. Some of us, I know, are even impacted by the absence of a father. But still, many of our physical traits, our preferences, our characteristics, and even aspects of our own character come from our fathers. When I see my daughter Kara turn purple while crying, I think to myself, that came from her mother. <laughs> uh, trust me, she got a lot of that from me too. Becca knew that was coming, by the way. So. Uh, she got a lot of that from me. We get good and bad from our parents. And we know this is, at least instinctively, we know it's true, even if we haven't talked about it with our parents. And what we get from our parents shapes who we are and to a large extent, what we do, even now. My point for us is not to go into some sustained reflection about our earthly parents, especially our fathers. My point is to introduce what is, I think, the theology of our passage today. And we've sung about it all morning. And that theology is that the character, and especially the love, of our Heavenly Father shapes, should shape, our identity, so that we live like His beloved children and righteous children until we see Jesus. I'll say that again. The character and especially the love of our Heavenly Father should shape our identity so that we live like His beloved and righteous children until we see Jesus. And the, the text, I think, is uh, conveniently for a sermon in three sections. Uh, And also, these provide, I think, the three reasons we can live well as God's children until we see Jesus. We can live as beloved children, as righteous children, until we see Jesus. First, in verses 1 to 3, I think John calls us to know and enjoy God's love for us as Father. To know and to enjoy God's love for us as Father. Second, in verses 4 to 8, we learn that God's true children practice righteousness, not sin. Again, in verses 4 to 8, God's true children practice righteousness, not sin. Finally, verses 9 to 10 tell us that God's beloved and obedient children take on their Father's character. God's children take on their Father's character. In these three reasons... Uh, that God calls us to live, our identities to be shaped as His children, in these three reasons, we also see negative counterparts. We see opposite truths. For instance, we're either born of God or born of the devil. So in the good news, there is bad news that I hope, I pray, leads us to the good news of the gospel. I think in this passage, John calls us to test ourselves and see if we are indeed in the faith. So I want us to ask today, am I a child of God? Is God my Father? 
And if we claim this, are we living like God's beloved children? I think this is the, the purpose of this passage. I'm going to read the passage in sections that I just broke down for us. So let me read. Let's read verses 1 to 3 in 1 John chapter 3. See, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children and now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. In verses 1-3, to John wants his readers and us to know and enjoy the love of God as His children. And we do that by hoping in Christ, by hoping in Jesus Christ, who we do not yet see right in front of us, but we wait expectantly for His return. And as we do that, God by His Spirit purifies us, just as Christ is pure, perfectly pure. In verse 1, John starts with a command. This may not be clear in our English translations because behold or see seems like an encouragement but it is an encouraging command john commands us to behold to know to see to enjoy the love of god more than any other new testament writer john reflects on god's love for us through christ so we would ask ourselves though how is it that god through john could command us to know and enjoy god's love It is a command. I I think there's two things that John wants us to know about God's love. And as we go along, we'll figure out why it is he can command us to know and enjoy God's love. First, I think we ought to know the quality of God's love for us as his children. Your version may say, how great the love of the Father that has been given to us. God's love is great because he is great. In uh, the Old Testament even, God was known as Father. We may miss that. We may think God is only known as Father when Jesus shows up. It's certainly amplified, but God is Father in the Old Testament. He calls Israel, the children of Israel, His firstborn son. That's why He's going to redeem them out of Egypt. They're His child. And when God calls Israel out of Egypt, when He ransoms them, when He brings them through the Red Sea, He then brings them back to Mount Sinai where He revealed His name to Moses. And he does it again. He tells Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the meaning of his name. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear, who will by no means clear the guilty. So the very name of the Lord, Yahweh, evokes, calls up His character. When you heard the name Yahweh, they were to think of the God who redeemed them out of Egypt, who saved them, who set His steadfast, His covenant love, His loyal love, His eternal love on them. So when we think of God, we should think of this character. And we should think and realize in this passage that God's great love has been given to us 
This is the second thing I think we should know about God's love. Its effects or its results. What God's love does for us and even in us. John tells us that God's love has been given to us to make us His children. And as, as we've sang and as has been read and as uh, we prayed, both Keith and Larry prayed, we have been adopted into the family of God. So we can trust God our Creator and think of His character as a loving, steadfast loving God, compassionate, merciful, loving, and just. To know that He's loved us, that He's made us His children. That it, as we know, we far and away do not deserve, but we've been made part of His family. I think in this passage, John gives us then three facts, three bits of evidence to prove that God's love has been given to us. So I'm going to look at some of the rest of the passage to explain verse 1 here. So stay with me. First, the first fact comes in verse 5. John states that Christ came to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. So when Jesus was born, the reason He was born was to take away sin, as we sang in the Gospel song. Right? And this word, take away, has the connotation of removing both the object and the effects of the object off of something or someone. I'm pretty sure when I wrestled my younger brother as a kid, he not only felt me, but he felt the effects of me pinning him down. And when I got up, he felt me off, and the effects, the weight, was lifted off of him. This is what Jesus accomplishes for us when he dies for us, when he comes to take away sin. And there's an echo here of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, who is going to be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah says. And even if you think of the Gospel of John, when John writes about what John the Baptist said about Jesus when he pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So the reason Jesus came into the world was to take away sin so that we could become children of God. And if He's going to take away sin, we're going to see He's also going to take away its effects. There's two other bits of evidence in this passage to uh, show us, remind us of God's love for us, that we can know and enjoy His love for us as His children. The second reason comes at verse 7. Verse 7 tells us that, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He, Christ, is righteous. In 1 John 2, John writes, he says, he writes, so that you might not sin. He doesn't write so that they would sin less, he says, but so that you would not sin. But then he says, he, he says John's not a perfectionist, as we'll, we'll see. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And Jesus is called righteous because He met every standard of God's law, which included God's plan to pay the penalty for sin. God's plan in calling Israel and redeeming Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, 
in sending the prophets to remind them of his love, of his covenant love, of his plan to send a Messiah, was to eventually one day pay for all the sin that the world had committed against him and against one another. To pay even for the sin you and I had not yet even thought about committing. God the Father piled all that up, all the sins of history, piled it up and laid it on Jesus on the cross. That's why John can say he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the place, he's the person, he's the one in whom all the penalty for sin because God is just, Exodus 34, 7, sin must be paid for. Wrongs must be righted. And God righted, He righted the wrongs in Jesus Christ. So we can know God's love for us as His children because our sins have been paid for in Jesus Christ. He is righteous. The third and the next fact or bit of evidence that we can love that we can know and enjoy God's love for us comes in verse 8 it says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil we'll come back to this for the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil so not only did Christ come to take away sin to pay the penalty for sin but also to destroy the works of the devil If you read the Gospel of John, you see just this subplot developing throughout the Gospel. It even has, as we looked at in John 6 when I preached, he even has one in his ranks who's a servant of the devil, Judas. So the great love of God that he would bring a betrayer into the inner circle of Jesus so that Jesus could die on the cross for our sins and defeat the one who Judas served, the devil. That's an already not yet thing. We know we're still tempted and tried, as we'll look at. But as, John, as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, the ruler of this world, Satan, is cast out already. He's been defeated. So this is key. We need to know this. We need to meditate on this. We need to talk to others about this and pray for one another for this. To know that Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin, but also to encourage incrementally, to use a good Tom Mercer word, defeat the power of sin in our lives. That as we grow in Christ, as we mature, that sin's power loses its grip on us. And we'll see this is true because of verses 2 and 3. But let me ask before we get there, do you know and love and enjoy the love of God for you? as Heavenly Father. Do we together rest in and enjoy the love of God for us as, his, as Heavenly Father? And this is, as, as Keith said well, the apex of theology. This is the ground level, fundamental, basic truth we have to know that it actually shapes all of who we are. It's not the cherry on top. We can't add God's love for us as Heavenly Father to whatever it might be we think Christianity is. But it is actually the essence of Christianity. It's why Jesus came. So that God could be Heavenly Father to us. And He sent His Son with the intention of being our Heavenly Father. 
But as we know, our experience, our feelings, don't always line up with reality. But remember, that's the case. Our feelings aren't always reality. Charles Spurgeon once said, that's easy to read, that we're God's children, but it's not so easy to feel. I think what may happen, oftentimes we play the game of, he loves me, he loves me not, with God. When we've had a good day, a good morning, we've had our quiet time and read the full chapter like we know we're supposed to, and we've not yet gotten angry at our spouse or our kids, we think, he loves me. Yet the next day, discouraged because we had a hurried time getting out of the house and we only read two verses, and we failed to love our kids, we think, he loves me not. Those are our feelings, and they're real. But they're not the truth. God doesn't play that game with us. If we are in Christ Jesus, who's died for us, who's defeated the works of the devil, we are God's children, period. Period. It's settled. So to behold the love of God, to enjoy the love of God, is an exercise of our faith and our obedience, of our trust in Christ and His promises. So John commands that we know, behold, love the love of God for us. And John can command it because God always gives what He requires. God always gives what He requires. He requires righteousness. If anyone claims to be righteous, he must be righteous. And He gives it in His Son Jesus who is righteous. He requires purity and He gives it in His Son who is perfectly pure. So we can know and enjoy and behold the love of God for us as His children because of who Jesus Christ is. If we struggle, if we feel like God doesn't love us, we need to look back at Jesus Christ. Look at the life He lived, the death He died, and how God raised Him from the dead so that He could set His love on us. John says in the rest of verse 1 that this fact, this truth, this essence of Christianity, God's love for us as Father, actually separates us from the world. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And I can't dwell here because I want to move on, but if you are a Christian, if you're a child of God in Christ, He is set His love on you and given you His Spirit because of the death and resurrection of Christ, that is what makes us different from the world. It's not our political affiliation. It's not our fact that we grew up Baptist, she grew up Presbyterian. It's not our preferences. It's not even how our earthly fathers treated, raised us. It's that God loved us in Christ Jesus. And because that's true, those who do not know the love of God will find us awkward and strange. And depending on where we live as Christians, they may even try to kill us. That's what separates. That's the reality. We just have to see that. So God loves us as His children, as our dear Heavenly Father. And He actually, because and by that love, He aims to transform us, as we see in verses 2 and 3. Let me read verse 2 again. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. 
as I said, because we don't yet see Christ, because we're still in a fallen world, because we're rejected by the world, we know we don't yet see Christ. He's not yet fully here. He hasn't yet made all things new. And if that causes us to then play the he loves me, he loves me not game, we turn in on ourselves. We fail to see the promises of Christ. The love of God made for us in Christ. That's not how God, though, plans to transform us. John Calvin once wrote, Our present condition is very short of the glory of God, of the glory of God's children. For as to our body, we are dust and a shadow. And death is always before our eyes. We are also subject to a thousand memories, and the soul is exposed to innumerable evils, so that we should always find a hell within us. The more necessary it is that all our thoughts should be withdrawn from the present view of things, lest the miseries by which we are on every side surrounded and almost overwhelmed should shake our faith in that joy which as yet lies hid. If we always evaluate our status before God based on how we feel that day before Him, we will find a hell within us, as Calvin said. This verse calls us to look outside of ourselves to the horizon of reality, which is God's promises for us in Jesus' return. It's a truth that Jesus Christ, as He told His disciples, I'm coming again. Until then, I'm with you till the end of the age. He will return one day and He will bring us into fellowship with God and we shall be like Him, John says, because we shall see Him face to face. The Bible ends in Revelation 22 with this hope. John, the same author of this letter in Revelation, sees a great vision of the new creation. And the best way he can describe it is to describe the most beautiful, precious stones on earth. And everything is going to be made of that. I think he's describing the fullness of God's presence with his people. There will be no more separation. No more sin, no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. Because we will, he says, see him face to face. And I think that's actually what God was doing in the very beginning. When he dwelled in the garden with Adam and Eve. Even face to face. Yet sin entered the world because of our rebellion and separated us from fellowship with God. He's been on a plan ever since then, a mission ever since then, since the foundations of the world, before the foundations of the world, to restore us to fellowship with Him. We sometimes caricature Christianity that's a a relational religion, but fundamentally it's true. Jesus Christ has died to bring us into relationship with the Creator of the universe. And one day we'll speak to Him, we'll worship Him face to face. This reality, that truth, should give us hope that sanctifies us now in the present. It should change us now. This can be a confusing reality, that the future somehow changes us in the present. But I think a lot of life is this way. So think, for instance, of a tax return. Something we love to think of. Something, by the way, we may consider more certain taxes than Christ's return. 
But if you think of a tax return, when you've filed or you've had your accountant file the taxes, and not only you're confident, but you get back the paperwork that shows you will get a couple hundred dollars back after you finish being mad at the federal government, you then think about what you will do with that money. And I, and I submit we, all of us, somehow make a plan even with that money. Some of us even the next day change our spending or our saving habits because of the promise of that money being deposited into our account or that check mailed to us. So the promise of a thing, the money in the future, changes the way we live now. That's the reality John's getting at when he says, whoever hopes in Him who's coming purifies himself as he is pure. As we set our eyes and our hearts, our minds, our lives on Jesus Christ, He purifies us as He is pure. Hope transforms us. One author says, people energetically sacrifice to attain what they hope for. If you hope for acceptance, you will sacrifice to have acceptance. If I hope for love, I will sacrifice to attain love. What do, you, what do we hope for? Do we hope for Christ? John calls us to hope for Christ so that we get Christ and we, the purity that comes from Him. So verses 1-3 to three tell us that God is our beloved, our great, gracious, giving Heavenly Father. And because He is that way, because God is love, He has given us His love. And that love is sure and it's possible because of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we hope in Him. Until we see Him, we hope in Him, and He purifies, He sanctifies us. So the question then is, how, what in the world does this have to do with lawlessness, sin, and the devil? Well, I think in verses 4-10, through 10, John explains what it looks like for the children of God to hope in Christ as He is pure what it looks like to live as the children of God. So let's read verses 4 to 8. Everyone who, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's an essential biblical truth, thus a truth of reality, that we do what we are. That our identity, our character, shapes our actions informs our actions. This is, I think, the reality John is describing in verses 4 to 8. The true children of God, if our identity is as God's children, we will practice righteousness, not sin, John says. The difficulty, however, comes in the language John uses and the way our English Bibles translate that language. Because he speaks of not sinning. Whoever abides in Christ does not sin, your Bible may say. 
So we need to ask ourselves a few questions. What does John mean by sin and lawlessness? Then what does he mean by righteousness? First, uh, some of your uh, translations may translate lawlessness as, as law-breaking, which makes us think of the Old Testament law, that whenever we sin, we break a law of the Old Testament. That's true. That is fundamentally true. But I think John is getting at, because of what's happened, because of why he's written this letter, lawlessness means something even greater. Because John wrote this letter, as he tells us in chapter 2, after a whole big group of people left the congregation, left this group of churches. And they were claiming, before they left, they were claiming that Jesus Christ hadn't actually come in the flesh. That he was maybe just some sort of awesome spirit that taught us great helpful things. But he, actu- he hadn't actually come in the flesh and died for sin. I think John, when he talks about lawlessness, is referring to those who, like those false teachers, totally denied Jesus Christ. They denied the very fact of Jesus' earthly, of his incarnation, his earthly presence. So I think when John says lawlessness, he's thinking of those antichrists, he called them, who deny, literally deny Christ. So lawlessness is settled rebellion against God, against his son, Jesus Christ. Thus, sin is settled rebellion against God in Jesus Christ. But that lawlessness, as we'll see, always shows up in concrete action. It did for that big group. They rebelled God in Christ. Thus, they left. So, this is the idea I think John is getting at with lawlessness. So then sin... John refers to sin as lawlessness. Sin then is lawlessness, this settled rebellion against God. Sin is not just an action. Sin, John looks at it as an entity. It's this whole thing. It's not just a single lie, but it's that settled rebellion against Jesus Christ. So then, it makes sense when John says in verse 6 that the one who abides in Christ does not sin, or as the ESV translates, does not keep on sinning. If we have a new identity, a new reality in Jesus Christ, as children of God, we're called to live in light of that reality. But John, I remind us that John is not a perfectionist. John doesn't think that as soon as we trust Christ, we never sin again in this life. Remember he said in chapter 2, if anyone does sin, And earlier in chapter 1, he calls us all to confess our sins. The irony is that that group that left actually denied the reality of sin. And in so doing, sinned. Because they denied Christ, they denied the reality of sin, the possibility of sin. Thus, they sinned. But those who are in God, in Christ, if we are God's children, we recognize honestly, as Larry prayed, that we sin from time to time. The point, however, of this passage is that as God's children, we should change. We should be increasingly transformed. And this may confuse, but I want to explain. Sin should grow strange to the children of God. As one author says, we may fall back every now and then, fall into sin, but we do not continue to practice sin. 
Righteousness, John says, should become the new practice for the children of God. So what is righteousness? He says, let no one, in verse 7, let no one deceive you. Whoever does righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. We, I know we will think of, if we've read our Bibles, we'll think of what Paul says, for instance, in Romans 3, that no one is righteous. No, not one seeks him. It's important, though, to remember the context of Romans 3 in which Paul says that. I think he's talking about every person apart from Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile. But if Christ has come and paid the penalty, defeated the power, eventually, totally, of sin in our lives, and by faith, because of the gift of God, we've become His children, sin should grow strange. We should grow in practicing righteousness. And I think righteousness means, for John, at least two things. Certainly, it's faith in Christ. Righteousness most certainly is a gift from God. But it's also, righteousness comes not just at the horizontal level, but, or at the vertical level, but at the horizontal level, between one another. John says, love one another, because God is love, in 1 John 4. Uh, Augustine said, love and sin is undone. Love and sin is undone. God slowly breaks the power of sin in our lives by giving us the Holy Spirit so that we can love one another. As Jesus loved us, as He said in John 15, greater love hath no man than this than that He should lay down His life for His friend. Jesus has done that for us. He's laid down His life for us. So the righteousness of Jesus Christ has become a gift to us. It's not earned, but it's also a model for us in the way we should live. He calls His disciples to love one another because He's laying down His life for them. So by arguing this way, by stating this as He does, John encourages us to persevere in doing righteousness. In doing what is right before God's eyes. Not before the world making heart choices for the truth, to love one another, to, fact, to sacrifice our time, our energies, our finances, perhaps even as our brothers in the Middle East, our lives for one another. So, Jesus Christ, because of His death and His resurrection, God becomes our Heavenly Father who loves us and He transforms us. He purifies us as He is pure. Let me ask us just a few questions before we uh, look at the last two verses and close. If we want to practice righteousness, as I said, it calls us to be realistic about sin. Part of that realism is that it should, go, it should grow strange to God's children. But on the other hand, sin is still a present reality. Because Jesus Christ has not yet returned, because we're not yet face to face with Him, there is still sin. So, my questions are, where are you with yourself and sin? There are, I think, at least three categories of folks. Those, one, who deny sin. Who are unaware of their sin. But that can't be for the children of God as John tells us, because if we confess our sins, meaning we should, 
God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ. So ask a brother or a sister, do you think I'm unaware of my sin? Second, I think there are those of us and those in the church who loathe themselves because of sin. Who get into this cycle of sin, I hate that I sinned, I know that I shouldn't sin, God has sent His Son to die for me to pay the penalty for sin, yet I sin. I hate myself because I sin. That actually breaks off the power for repentance and forgiveness that God has offered for us in Jesus Christ. Because remember... He's made us His children. That's the fundamental identity. And we confess to our Heavenly Father, our loving Father, because we're His children. Just think of the prodigal son. Wayward as he goes, eating with pigs, and yet thinks of his father and the blessings and the benefits and the love he had in the presence of his father. So he runs back. That's is how we need to respond when we sin. We confess, we repent, because we trust in the provision God's made for us in Christ. And that, as I just said, that is, I think, the third category. We're realistic about who we are as God's children who yet still sometimes sin, but we confess and we repent because we know God has provided for that sin to be paid for and eventually, yes, it feels slowly, defeat the power of and one day, take care of the presence of sin. Very quickly, let me just read and summarize verses 9 and 10. Because we've seen, first, God's people understand we know and enjoy God's love for us as Heavenly Father. Verses 1 to 3. In verses 4 to 8, God's true children practice righteousness, not sin. In verses 9 and 10, John kind of returns back to the thought of verse 1. And tells us that God's true children demonstrate the character of their father. Verse 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the principle of like father, like son, or daughter. And if we are in Christ, by the grace of God, we will demonstrate His character. And this is key, lest I or John or we confuse one another here. This is a gift from God. We are born of God, not of ourselves. Though she may think it in later in life, our daughter did nothing <laughs> to be born. Except cause her mother some trouble. This is what God does for us in Christ. He makes our hearts alive by the Spirit. Though once dead in sin, as Ephesians 2 says, He makes us alive. The Spirit, we don't know from where it goes, where it blows, where it will go next, as Jesus says in John 3. It's the Spirit who makes us alive. who makes us born of God. And it's that seed he says in verse 9, that then should govern our lives. As the roots of a tomato plant take over the soil, that's the way God's Word should work in our lives. By the Holy Spirit. So, are you 
a child of God? Do you know and enjoy God's love for you as Heavenly Father? Do you thus practice righteousness? If you see that you've been this last week, consider your week. If we've been practicing sin, the necessary step is for us to confess to God because we trust Him that He will forgive us, that He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Finally, because of all this truth, do you know that you or we are called to demonstrate the character of God in our lives? And it calls us, as we pray, I'll close this in prayer here, it calls us to then go out and actively love one another, to lay down our lives for one another. And this requires that we be in relationship, face-to-face with one another, because God has, has put us in relationship with Himself. So God is our loving Heavenly Father. And He's taken every step necessary to make us His children. And because He's made us His children, He's taken every step necessary to give us, to, to cause us to, to walk in righteous lives because of the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection and also the way that Jesus lived. So until we see Jesus, let, let's hope in Him. Cast our eyes to Him, not to ourselves, so we can be pure as He is pure. I'll close this in prayer, and as I do, the praise team will come to close us in worship. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess and we trust and we know and we enjoy that You are our loving Heavenly Father. And that You have made us Your children because of this great gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And yet we confess, Lord, that we often do not feel this. Even right now, as I've spoken these words, we may struggle to know because of past sins, because of insecurities, because of the temptations of the evil one, we struggle to know to feel your love. God, we ask, we pray that you remind us of your love for us because of Jesus Christ, not of ourselves. That you would give us grace by the Spirit to set our eyes on him waiting on Him, and as we do, loving one another as Your Son Jesus loved us. We pray this in His name. Amen.